All right, we're in dysfunctional relationships, part two. And I want to just, I want to ask the question this morning just to gauge where we all are. How many of you would, would volunteer that in general, in general, you prefer to avoid relational conflict? How many of you just as a general rule? Okay, that's most of us, right? In, in general, we don't just love to engage in, in conflict with those that we love. We just don't like it because, because it, can, it can become unpleasant quite quickly. It can become quite you know, toxic very quickly. Um, I'm gonna give you just a very brief example that I gave a while back, but this is, um, this is how quickly conflict can escalate. M- many years ago, I think we were probably two years, at, we had just started the church, we were like maybe two or three years old, my wife and I, along with our kids, were, were helping out at the, Flint, at the U-City uh, homecoming parade. So our local school district had a homecoming parade. We're helping out. It's a fun time for everybody. The kids are there. Everybody, kids have their face paint on. We've got ice cream. We're walking. We're in the parade. We do the whole parade. It's a hot, sunny day. It's in July. We come back from the parade. We're in the parking lot behind the farmer's market on Del Mar Boulevard. And uh, the kids are in the car. Rebecca's in the car, and a couple of the, uh, the dads, we're unloading stuff out of my Jeep and, and you know, putting it in somebody else's car from the, from the parade. And as we're doing that, and every, you know, everybody's working together quite nicely and everything's cool, suddenly I hear, like very loudly, somebody just blasts their horn. And not like a, not like a Midwestern honk, not like a meep, meep, no. This is a meh, I mean, I'm talking like, loud and I turn around because I thought somebody's going to crash into us and right behind my car is a pickup truck and there's a whole family in the pickup truck mom's driving dad's in the passenger seat two kind of grown boys in the back and 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 mom is just laying on the horn just laying on the horn so and I'm looking like what what is going on and then I realize she's honking she's honking at us and I'm thinking to myself okay well first of all like we're just unloading the car Come on, somebody help me, right? And, and P.S., also, there's room to go around, right? So I just thought, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe there was some disconnect. So I kind of try to go over to her to say, hey, just, hey, just a second, like we're just unloading the car. You know, we're just unloading this from the parade, right? So all is well. I go back over to the Jeep, and we're still unloading, and suddenly, I mean, again, y'all. And I'm talking loud, I'm talking long, and you know how it kind of, some of you are feeling what I was, you know, it's kind of your heart rate just kind of pumps a little bit, right? There's a little bit of a feeling that comes over you, right? And, I, and I'm, I've got my kids in the car. There are people all around. We just had a great day, right? So I go kind of back to the truck and I go, ma'am, we are unloading the car from our children's homecoming parade. I said it nice and slow, emphasizing <laughs> every word. So I thought, I don't know what I thought. I thought maybe she would go, oh, it's a, oh, okay, okay, sorry, no problem, right? That's what I thought. I, I don't know if I thought that, but that's what I was hoping. But instead, instead, she says this, promise you, promise you. My wife was there. She says, I don't care about your parade. <laughs> now, that just triggered something in my brain. And my brain just, because <laughs> my kids are in the car, they still have their little, you know, lion face paint on, you know, like there, right? And so she says, I don't care about your parade. And I turned to her, y'all, and at the top of my voice, I said, well, I don't care about you. (laughs) 
I'm telling you, I said it loudly. I said it proudly. Two problems with that comeback. One is, it's not a great comeback, actually. Not very clever. Not very sharp. I could have, I had 20 other ones I could. But the second one is the content of what I said. Because, because actually, right kind of at that point, with all the families around, the, my family in the car, I just planted a church that's about 200 yards away. And the mission of the church is bringing people and God together in love. And I'm sweating in the parking lot, yelling at a woman saying, I don't care about you. Um, I, don't, I don't think she's a member of the church. I don't think it ever. But, but what you can see is that conflict can go bad really quickly. It can become toxic very quickly. It, it can go south very quickly. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we avoid conflict is because it can, it can just erupt and bubble over into a level of conflict that is hypertoxic and that is erosive and corrosive to relationships. Now, the problem is sometimes we experience that and we experience conflict sort of on a spectrum. I've got a little spectrum for you. On one end of the spectrum, you have this toxic conflict where you're just yelling at people and standing out in the parking lot sweating, right? And then what, when you want to avoid that, then sometimes you end up at the very other end of the spectrum, which is called artificial harmony. Artificial harmony is when you actually don't say what needs to be said. You keep this kind of calm, peaceful veneer over everything, and underneath it there's bitterness and anger and, 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 and cynicism and, and lack of trust and erosion of, of, of intimacy, and it just absolutely... So either end of this spectrum is destructive, right? So you've got tox, to, the toxic conflict on one, and you've got uh, artificial harmony on the other. So how do we get out of this out of this spectrum? How do we get off of one end or the other of this spectrum? Well, the scripture provides us with a treasure trove of insight, deep, powerful insight about how to engage in conflict in a way that's ultimately healthy and productive. And last week we looked at Adam and Eve and and the first discord in their relationship and we called that the blame game. If you haven't seen that sermon, I encourage you to go back online and and watch that because that that talks about some of the dynamics within a marital relationship. Today we're going to look at a different kind of relationship. We're going to look at a relationship between two peers, two colleagues. In fact, the two most prominent, most important apostles of the first century. We're going to look at a beef between the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. The two apostles, you'll see their picture right here. This is the, you can tell they're in conflict just by the way their eyebrows are raised here. So they, they, they actually entered into, um, a lot of people don't know this, but these are, this is the intellectual and spiritual leaders of the church in the first century, the top two apostles, two most influ- influential apostles, and uh, in, a, in a situation called the incident at Antioch, they got into a beef, they got into a scrape with each other. And from that relationship and from that disagreement, we can draw some powerful insights about how we are to interact with those we love. Because actually conflict, if you do it well, conflict can actually lead to an increase in relational health, an increase in intimacy, a deepening of understanding, and a way to move forward in a relationship rather than a way to blow a relationship up. So let me give you a little context about the dynamic between these two, Peter and Paul, and and what arose, what uh, gave rise to their conflict. So as some of you know, both Peter and Paul were very, very interested in proclaiming the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And so one of the the central questions in the first century, one of the first 
questions that they were asking is, how Jewish does a person need to become in order to become a Christian? In other words, all of the very first Christians, Peter, Paul, and all of the other ones, were Jewish. And so when they were proclaiming the gospel, the question was, does a person who's not Jewish need to become Jewish and then become a Christian, or can they just become a Christian without becoming Jewish first? So a big question arose around how much of the ceremonial laws, how much of the dietary restrictions. Old Testament has 613 laws. How many of those laws do people need to follow in order to become a Christian? Or do they just need to put their faith in Jesus and, and then seek to follow the moral teachings that Jesus, that Jesus taught, the, the moral law? And so there was a big discussion among the first century leaders. So Peter and Paul and James and the apostles, they all had this big discussion. It was called the Jerusalem Council. It was, you can read about it in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. And they had this big discussion and they come up with a conclusion. And the conclusion is simply this. Um, when a person becomes a Christian, they need to put their faith in Jesus. They need to observe the, the moral laws, the teachings, the moral laws of, of Jesus. But they don't need to follow all of the dietary restrictions, all of the ceremonial laws, all of the ritualistic laws, the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They don't need to do that, right? And so Peter and Paul are both very happy about this ruling because they're trying to reach Gentiles and they don't want to make it harder than it needs to be. And the Gentiles are, of course, happy because they don't have to you know, try to carry this weight that it's, nobody can really carry. And so Peter and Paul go out and they start proclaiming the gospel to everyone, okay? Well, then <laughs> Paul notices something that Peter is doing. Paul notices that when Peter is hanging around Gentiles, he's acting like a Gentile, meaning he's kind of eating with them, he's hanging out with them, he's having you know, pork steaks and, and BLTs, like he's just <laughs> kicking it with the Gentiles on their level, right? But then when highly observant Jews come down from Jerusalem, Peter starts distancing himself from the Gentiles, and he starts acting a little holier than thou, and he starts acting a little bit self-righteous, and he starts acting like the Gentiles are second-class citizens, and he starts acting like he's this highly observant Jew that's, that's, not, uh, that, that's, that's following all the laws. And Paul is noticing this. And Paul is a little bit upset about this because it's sending the wrong signal not only to the Gentiles. The signal it's sending to the Gentiles are, y'all are second-class citizens. And it's also sending the wrong signal to the other Jews, which they're starting to look at Peter because Peter's highly influential. And they're looking at Peter and they're going, oh, is this the way we're supposed to act, right? So Paul says, I need to have a difficult conversation with my brother Peter. And that difficult conversation is written about in Galatians. Paul tells us how the conversation went down. Here's what he says, Galatians 2. Paul writes this. He says, when Cephas, or Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him behind his back. Wait, no, that's not what it says. Hold on. <laughs> he said, I opposed him to his face. I went and had a conversation with him because he stood condemned. In other words, he was guilty. He knew he was guilty. He knew what he was doing was wrong. We already had a conversation about it. I went and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He's kind of explaining the problem. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and he separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So he was like, I'm afraid that I'll lose my status with the, with the highfalutin guys if I keep hanging out with the, with the Gentiles. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So like all of the 
all of the high-ranking apostles and leaders of the Christian church started to be led astray by what Peter was doing. Can I just tell you something real quick? Conflict avoided is conflict multiplied. When you don't address a situation that needs to be addressed, the situation will get worse. And it will impact other people. And it will begin to spread. And it will become more corrosive and more toxic in more relationships. So, so he said, I needed to have this conversation with Peter. He says in verse 14, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, I, I went to Peter and I spoke to, to Cephas, to Peter, in front of them all. I said, Peter, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So what he's doing is saying, look, I want to have a confrontation or a a communication with you, a difficult conversation with you about something that I see you doing that is problematic that both you and I agreed we would not do. We agreed that we would make it easy for Gentiles to follow Jesus by telling them to put their faith in Jesus and then to seek to follow his teachings, not to become observant Jews following the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They had agreed to that. He needed to confront that. So so he's talking to, to, to Peter about that. Now, one thing I want you to notice is not only what he did say, but I want you to notice what he did not say. Okay, Because a lot of times in a conflict, what you don't say is more important than what you do say. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's a book um, that I strongly recommend uh, by a guy named John, Co- John Gottman. It's called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. And in this book, he talks about the different uh, communication strategies that are helpful, but then he really includes the four communication strategies that are not helpful. In, and, and actually, they apply to all relationships, not just marriages. I'm going to give them to you really quickly. Here are the four strategies you want to avoid whenever you're engaging in a conversation. There are four of them. Number one, criticism. Number two, defensiveness. Number three, contempt. And number four, stonewalling. These are the four strategies. In fact, Gottman calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse of your relationship. In other words, if you do these four things enough, you will erode the trust in the relationship and the relationship will not carry on. Okay, criticism is when you're not complaining about an underlying issue, you're criticizing the character of the person. So in other words, in this case, Paul was saying to Peter, he was like, look, you're doing something that we agreed that you wouldn't do, right? That's a complaint. If he had turned to Peter and said, you're a low-lying hypocrite, you're a down and dirty devil, right? He would have been criticizing his character. He didn't do that. So he, he, he complained and, and, and criticized the behavior, but he didn't criticize the character of the person. Are you with me this morning? So when you're in a conflict, keep the conflict about the thing, not about the person with whom you're having the conflict. That's number one, criticism. Defensiveness is when somebody brings something to your attention, and rather than address that thing, you immediately try to defend yourself by bringing in something else. It's like, it's like, whoop, I, I know you wanted to talk to me about that, but I'm going I'm to sidestep that issue. And, and one way of doing it is if you complain to, something, to, to someone about something, and then suddenly, rather than them addressing that, then they complain about something that you did at some prior point. Are you with me this morning, or has anybody never had any of this happen in your life? So, okay. So if I say, if, 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 if Rebecca says to me, honey, I wish you would have washed the dishes uh, yesterday, and then I say, instead of, oh, yeah, my, my bad, I forgot. If I say, uh, yeah, but two weeks ago I noticed you didn't do the laundry, so. Okay. 
That's not a good technique, all right, guys? Just from personal experience. That's called defensiveness, all right. So number three is contempt. Contempt is when you insult with the intent to injure. That's when you know somebody well enough that you know their buttons and you're gonna press that button, right? Oh yeah, well, you're just like your mother. Yeah, that's what your dad would have done, right? And you're just like, wait a second, you just went there, okay? Um, that, that's, that's contempt. Uh, contempt can also be done in nonverbal ways. So when you, when you roll your eyes, yeah, right, right? That's contempt. I've never done that. Um, and then stonewalling, stonewalling is when you, you, get, you get emotionally flooded and so you just shut down. You're just like looking out like through dead eyes. You're just like the conflict has gotten too high and I just can't even carry it on anymore, right? And, and stonewalling, stonewalling lo- it makes it look like you don't care, but actually your heart rate is pounding when you're stonewalling. Like you, you, you're shutting down because you just don't wanna do something worse than shut down. So, so that's, that's what stonewalling. So anyway, those are the four things you don't wanna do. Those are the four things that, that will, will ab- absolutely lead to the decay of the relationship. So what do you want to do? What, what do we really want to do? Let me put you back on the spectrum. What we actually want to do is we want to find this middle part right here. This is called healthy conflict. Healthy conflict. This is when we are neither in toxic conflict nor are we in artificial harmony. We are in healthy conflict. But in order to get to healthy conflict, conflict that will actually lead you forward, in your relationships, and I'm talking about all kinds of relationships, the only way to do that is to be able to have difficult conversations. So today what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna ask you to take notes on this, because I use this all the time. I'm calling this a practical guide to difficult conversations. And when I say practical, this is gonna be the most practical sermon that you have ever heard in your life. Can I just tell you, this guide, this practical guide, I use this on a regular basis. Anytime that I need to have a difficult conversation, either personally or professionally, I go back, I've got this document in my Google Docs, I pull it up, I review it, I walk it out, I do the same thing. I've taught it to our interns, I've taught it to our staff, and I'm teaching it to, I've taught it to other churches, I'm teach, now I'm teaching it to us. So, so here's, here's, here's how we do it. First we have to, first we have to get over our excuses for uh, avoiding difficult conversations. Because a lot of times we know we need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, but we don't want to have the difficult conversation and then we give ourselves excuses for not having the difficult conversation. I'll give you the three excuses we use. Number one is we say we don't want to hurt their feelings. Number two, we say that the problem's not that bad. And number three, we say the problem will work itself out. So, so a lot of times there's a difficult situation, something that needs to be addressed, and we will say one of these things. Like, I know I need to talk to them about this, but I don't want to hurt their feelings, right? These are all justifications or rationalizations for not having conversations that we need to have, okay? Let me give you the real reasons that we avoid difficult conversations. The real reason is that, number one, we're, fear of, we're afraid of rejection, and number two, we lack confidence in our ability to have the conversation. All of us like to be liked, and difficult conversations make it more difficult to be liked, or at least it feels that way. So Paul wanted Peter to like him, right? They were brothers in the Lord, they were apostles, they were peers. So he was probably tempted, although Paul seems like pretty assertive to me, but, but Paul was probably attempted, tempted, at least to some degree, to say, I don't want Peter to reject me because Peter was right there beside Jesus. Peter is the most influential apostle, and if I go and confront him, then is he going to reject me? 
right? So a lot of times, these are the real reasons. We're a little bit afraid that people won't like us or we don't have the confidence in knowing how to have the difficult conversation in a way that will ultimately bring health and peace to our relationships. So what I'm gonna do for the next short few minutes is I'm gonna run through the entire list. This is a very practical guide to having difficult conversations. Are you guys ready? All right. Sharpen them pencils. Here we go. Number one, pray for them. Pray for them. Can I just tell you, you cannot approach a person properly if you do not see them properly. You cannot communicate with them appropriately if you don't see them appropriately. How do you see them appropriately? Well, they are made in the image and likeness of God. They were made by God. They are loved by God. No matter what they said or did to you, they are God's workmanship. They are God's handiwork. So in order for you to get your head right, your mind right, you need to pray for them before you go have the difficult conversation with them. Because if you don't see them right, you cannot approach them right. Now, I learned this the hard way. I, learned, I won't get into, all into it, but I had to learn this for myself. Because a lot of times when you're in conflict with somebody, the last thing you want to do is pray for them. That's the last thing you want to do. You want to, you want to curse them. You want to bring hellfire and judgment down on them, right? And actually, you can start your prayers that way. I've taught this before. This is how David would start his prayers. He would say, Lord, bash in the teeth of my, the children of my enemies, right? <laughs> but over time, you need to, you've got to, that prayer needs to transform to where you're saying, Lord, bring them wholeness. Whatever it is that's in their life that's causing them this distress, bring them peace, bring them blessing, bring them strength. Let, let me approach them in the way that you would have me approach them. A lot of times when people come to me and they say, hey, I'm having conflict with somebody, my very first question is, have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for them? Because that will reorient your heart. Here's how, here's how Jesus said it. Jesus said this, love your enemies and pray, this is a command, pray for anybody who mistreats you. So we start with prayer, praying for them. Number two, pray for you. You need to pray for your own self before you go into that conversation. You need to pray, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Renew a right spirit in me because I'm getting ready to engage in this conflict and I'm upset and I'm frustrated, I'm mad, I'm angry. Help me, Lord God, to approach them with openness, generosity, tenderness, truth. Let me approach them the way you would have me approach them. So notice that, and can I just say this, sometimes just that prayer is gonna resolve the conflict in your own mind. Sometimes you go, man, you know what? I'm just holding the grudge against somebody for no good reason. So, so prayer for them, prayer for you. These are step one, step two. Number three, strategize the conversation with a trusted confidant. Do not read this as go gossip about the person that you have a beef with. Strategize with a trusted confidant. I have seven people on my speed dial that I reach out to whenever I'm about to engage in a difficult conversation. I have my pastor, I have my three overseers, I have two friends, I have my wife, uh, and then I also have my sisters, <laughs> who I'll talk to every once in a while about, or family members. Um, so that's nine. Uh, and then my uncle, that's 10. So actually, actually, I'm thinking about it. So, but, but the value of this is, if I've gotta go talk to somebody about something hard, then I need, I need to get the right perspective before I go into that conversation. Because sometimes you need a, some outside voices of wisdom 
The Bible says in the, in the abundance of counselors, there is safety, right? So you put yourself in the abundance of counselors because sometimes people will point out things about the dynamic or about the relationship that you're not seeing. All of us have blind spots. And so I'm coming in from my perspective, but if I come in too hot and I'm missing something, right, then I'm gonna mess the whole relationship up. So you've gotta spend time, strategize with a trusted confidant. Now, this is something that I do almost every time. Anytime I don't do this, I wish that I had because I go, oh, what I could have learned from somebody else, I'm now learning in the middle of the conversation. And I wish I had backed up and talked to somebody uh, that, that could help me think through this situation, think through this problem, okay? And a lot of times, the person that you're speaking to will have already had a, 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 a difficult situation like the, the, this that they've already navigated, and they've got fresh eyes. So that's, that's number three, strategize with a trusted confidant. Number four is develop an outline. This is a very simple one. But if you've ever had a conversation just go off the rails because you, weren't, you just weren't organized in your thoughts and you start talking about one thing and then it leads to another thing, next thing you know, you're talking about something 25 years ago. Yeah, and you're like, wait a minute. Where, I forget what we were talking about at the beginning. right? We were gonna talk about this and now we're all over here. So you don't have to bring your outline, but you can. But have an outline. Okay, here's what I'm gonna talk about. And it's going to be linear and it's going to be clear. And we're going to talk about one thing. <laughs> we're not going to talk about all my complaints. I'm not going to bring a whole bucket load of stuff. I'm going to bring one thing. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to be precise. When Peter, or when Paul came to Peter, he had one thing. He was like, Peter, listen, remember when we agreed that we weren't going to put this weight on the Gentiles? You're putting the weight on the Gentiles, my brother. And it's causing a lot of discord and disharmony. And we need to talk about that, right? He had a strategy. He had a plan. So that's number four, develop an outline. Number five, set the table. Set the table. What does that mean? That means you want to give the person, if you can, a heads up that we're getting ready to talk about something difficult. It's an on-ramp, right? You can do a text. You can do a call. You can see him in the office and be like, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Let's meet at 2 o'clock, okay? And this way they know all right, there's going to be a conversation. Now, if you're, if you're generous and confident and you have courage, you can actually give them a little snippet about what the conversation is. Hey, I want to talk to you uh, on Wednesday about this issue that I noticed on Tuesday, right? So then they know, like, okay, let me get my head right. Let me get ready. You don't want to, you don't want to blindside someone if you can avoid that, right? You want to set the table, provide them with an opportunity to prepare themselves for the conversation. Is this helpful to anybody? All right. Um, all right, so that's, that's number five, set the table. Number six, open with clarifying questions. Here's the, here's the problem. Anybody here like super, like intuitive? Like intuitive, anybody kind of like discerning intuitive? I'm kind of an intuitive person, which makes, which makes me think that I understand everybody's motives every time. <laughs> the problem is I don't understand everybody's motives every time, but I think I do. So what happens is if I come in assuming that I understand what your motive is, right, and that wasn't your motive, now I've just insulted you unnecessarily, right? So you open with clarifying questions. You come into the conversation and say, hey, help me to understand this better. Uh, this I noticed. This I observed. Can you please help me understand what you were thinking or what was happening in your mind or why you did that? Because a lot of times you'll, under, you'll figure out like, oh, there was stuff going on that I didn't even understand. I'll give you a quick example. 
Years ago, I was preaching a sermon just like this on a different topic. And somebody got up, somebody in our church got up and walked out of the auditorium right in the middle of, of the sermon. It was kind of towards the end of the, of the sermon. And it was when I was hitting on a particular theological point. I won't get all into it. And immediately, I made an assumption. I said, oh, they disagree with my theology on that, and they're leaving the church. That was my assumption. I literally was thinking that as they walked right out the door, right? And then I didn't see them after church, and so on Monday, I thought, man, they left the church, y'all, because they didn't agree with my theological point. Now, I could have picked up the phone and asked them, but I just figured I understood already. I knew, right? So I came in on Tuesday, and we were talking about this and that and whatever, and I dropped the person's name in the conversation. I said, hey, did you see so-and-so, uh, you know, leave service on, on, on Sunday? And the person that I was talking to said, oh, yeah, they came out to the lobby because they were helping set up for the, uh, for the greeting on the way out. <laughs> so for like 72 hours, I had determined that this person was leaving the church when, in fact, they got up to go set up some tables and chairs to, to provide hospitality to people on the way out. Do not assume that you understand people's motives. You and I, we're not God. We do not always, and we can have a pretty good bead, like, hey, I think I know what they're thinking. I think I know what their motive is. I think I know where they're headed with this. But do not assume that. Open with clarifying questions. Help me to understand. Seek to understand before being understood. Are you with me this morning, everybody? That's number six. Number seven is be compassionate and candid. What I mean by this is some of you are going to err on the side of compassion. Some of you are going to err on the side of candor. Okay? Some of you are going to be so squishy that you don't want to actually say what's on your mind. You're going to hem-haw around it. You're going to schmooze it all up because you just want to love people, but you can't speak the truth. Anybody like that this morning? You're not going to admit. No, nobody's going to admit anything this morning. Um, so the... But, but then others of you are strong on the candor, but you don't do it in compassion. So you're like, I want to speak the truth. I'll speak my mind. But you're not doing it in love, right? So, so the, the problem is compassion without candor leads to concession, meaning like you're just going to put up with whatever, okay? But candor without compassion leads to condemnation. Now you're just coming down on somebody. So what you really need is compassion and candor, because that leads to transformation. All right, so there's truth and there's love. You need them both. The scripture says, speak the truth in love, right? Because, that, because otherwise, you're either going to not address the thing that needs to be addressed, or you're just going to crush somebody with the weight of what you have to say. All right, so you've got to be both compassionate and candid. Here's what Jesus said about that. He said, if your brother or sister sins or, or you know, does something wrong, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. In other words, there needs to be some compassion here. You don't want to put them on blast in front of everybody in that moment. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So, so there's, there's compassion and there's candor. You've got to have both of them if you want to actually resolve the, the, uh, the, the relationship and resolve the conflict. Number eight. Here we go. This is kind of intense. If it's personal make it personal. If it's professional, make it professional. All right, now let me explain what I mean by this. This is kind of nuanced, okay? But the goal of personal relationships is to increase intimacy, okay? 
So like in a marital relationship uh, or in even a, fan, uh, a, you know, a parent-child relationship, the primary goal is to increase the intimacy. Can I just tell you, there will be things about the people that you love that you won't like. And there'll be things about you that they don't like, right? And you're not going to be able to change them, and they're not going to be able to change you. I might have just saved somebody's marriage just now, right? <laughs> you can't, there are certain things that you cannot change in another person, and there are certain things that they cannot change about you, right? But in a personal relationship, the real goal is to build intimacy. And so in that situation, it's important for you to express, hey, this is how it made me feel when you did X, Y, or Z, right? It would make me feel different, better if you didn't do that, right? But ultimately, you're, you're expressing your emotion. And in a professional dynamic, the, the goal is not necessarily increasing intimacy, it's addressing behavior, right? So you're either addressing the behavior of somebody that you report to, or you're addressing the behavior of somebody that reports to you. And so in that case, don't overdo it on your own emotions about that, right? Because that person is not necessarily trying to build intimacy with you. What they're trying to do is, is develop patterns and behaviors that will actually advance the mission of whatever organization you're in, okay? Now, sometimes relationships are both personal and professional, and you gotta navigate that wisely. That's when you go back and you talk to your, your, your confidants, your trusted confidants, to figure out how to navigate that. But what you wanna remember is, what is the goal of this conversation? Am I trying to increase intimacy or am I trying to change behavior? Are you with me this morning? Because that will determine how you play that, that conversation out. Number nine, number nine, and then there's only one more. Listen closely to their response. Listen closely to their response. What you really wanna do is you want to understand how they received what you had to say. Do they, if, they, if they screwed up, did they own it? If they, uh, do they take responsibility? Do they ask for forgiveness? Do, did they point something out that you weren't thinking of? Do you need to seek forgiveness from them? Listen very, very closely to their response. It's super important that you understand where they're coming from in order for the relationship to move forward. Okay, so listen closely to their response. And then the last one is this, number 10, forgive no matter what. Now, this is a hard one, y'all. But you, just trust me, this is for you. This is for you. Now, doesn't mean you're gonna always reconcile the relationship. Hear me now, please hear me. Doesn't mean you're always gonna work it out and the two of you are gonna be Facebook friends for the rest of your life. But in your heart, you must release the judgment of the person to the judge. Judge, I give you judgment of the person. I cannot keep harboring judgment. I cannot keep harboring unforgiveness. I cannot keep harboring cynicism and bitterness towards this person. Because if I do, I don't know what they're gonna do, but I know I'm gonna tank myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy not only my relationship with them, I'm gonna destroy my relationship with God. How do we know this? This is what Jesus said, Matthew 6. He said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Can I just tell you people, let it go. Release it. Get on your knees. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Release that person from the sin that they committed against you. Like I said, please do not hear this as 
justifying their sin, excusing their sin, accepting their sin, none of that, or even necessarily reconciling. Do not reconcile with people who have demonstrated they will continue to harm you as, every time you reconcile. Don't do that. But forgive them. Release them. Let it go. So how did it end with Peter and Paul? Two most important apostles, the most influential apostles of the first century. How did it end? Well, we know how it ended because a few years later, Peter wrote in his second epistle, he wrote this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our, our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Isn't that beautiful, y'all? Because Peter and Paul had a beef, but they both understood that they needed to resolve this. They understood they needed healthy conflict to advance not only their relationship, but to advance the greater mission. They became the two most influential. In fact, if they hadn't solved their conflict, I can't say with any certainty that we would be here today worshiping God. I just don't know what would have happened if, that, if these two brothers had not worked it out. So can I just encourage us, let's be like that. Let's avoid, let's avoid toxic conflict. Let's avoid artificial harmony. In fact, at the very, at the very end, when, when Paul was writing Romans, here's how he put it. He says, if it's possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Church, can I tell you, we have an opportunity in a world where there's hate to actually bring love. We have an opportunity to bring peace where there's disunity. We have an opportunity to bring health where there's discord. We have an opportunity to bring wholeness. We have an opportunity to show that just because two people disagree doesn't mean they have to disassociate or disaffiliate or disunify. We have an opportunity as followers of Jesus to demonstrate true love for one another and true love for those who disagree with us. Jesus said, by your love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. And a world that is polarized and toxic and crazy as all get out, followers of Jesus have an opportunity to show a better way. We have an opportunity to, to engage in difficult conversations in a way that brings peace, healing, and wholeness to our world. Let's bow our heads. Father, you're so good. I pray that individually, each and every one of us, Lord, would embrace and apply the truths of your word today to our relationships. That we would avoid toxic conflict. That we would avoid artificial harmony. That we would embrace the kinds of, of healthy conflict that needs to be happening in the body of Christ and in the world at large. That we would pray for those who mistreat us, that we would offer forgiveness, that we would say what needs to be said and we would speak the truth in love. Let us be a light. Let us shine your example. Let us be a, a true city on a hill, Lord. Let us genuinely, truly bring people and God together in love. We love you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. 